in the book of Ephesians, a series that we've been going through for several months, the title of which is on the screen behind me. It's Your Place in God's Plan. We have an outline for you for today's message inserted in your program. I encourage you to take that as we'll be referring to it. So what do you want to be when you grow up? It's a question that we ask children from an early age. They're often ready to give an answer. A policeman, fireman, musician, an athlete, a mom. But what you want to be is much less important than who you want to be. Who that child grows up to be like is much more important than what he or she will do. And when we go from what we want to do to who it is we want to be, it's a very serious matter. If I not only want to be an athlete, but if I want to be like my favorite athlete, then it's important that that favorite athlete be a good role model. Contra Charles Barkley, who, before he was an NBA commentator, was an NBA, a great NBA player, and also a bit of a jerk. And when he was asked about his duty to be a role model to the children who look up to him, Barkley deflected by trying to deny that he's anyone's role model and saying that parents are to be kids' role models. What a great trick. Of course it's true that parents are to be role models for their children, but number one, that doesn't mean that they do not have other and even competing role models. And Charles, you're one of those. And secondly, he conveniently forgot that half of the kids in the African-American community don't have a father to be a role model for them. And so they're all the more likely to look to guys like Barkley to fill that void. Who you want to be like is much more important than what you want to be. And notice what chapter 4 and verse 24 says in the book of Ephesians. It tells us there to put on the new self, created to be like God. So who do you want to be like? Not just what do you want to do or what do you want to be? Who do you want to be? And the Bible says we're to put on something called the new self that's created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And then chapter 5 and verse 1 says this, be imitators of God. And so God's word tells us that we are to aspire to be like, to imitate God. We're going to explore together this morning the extent to which each of us is pursuing that God likeness. That God, that Christ is our role model and whether or not we're increasingly becoming like him. We need his help, do we not? Let's ask him to help us as we look at his word in this regard. Our Father, we come before you again as your people, hungry for your word, to see what you tell us there 
about what we need to aspire to. No, who it is we need to aspire to be like. You've told us that we are to be like you. We are to be holy as you are holy. And yet, Lord, we know what we are like and the struggles that we have. We need your aid. Apart from you, we would have zero desire, none. At one time, we did not have the desire to be like you. But you, by your Spirit, have implanted in us a desire to be like Jesus. And we need your aid now as we daily and weekly and yearly become more like Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to leave this place with a greater burning desire to be like the Lord Jesus Christ and thus achieve the purpose for which you have made us and for which you are remaking us, to bring you honor and glory. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Now, it has been three weeks since we were last in our series in the book of Ephesians. I was out of town a couple of weeks ago. Last week, we had Ordinance Sunday, which meant the worship Hour was devoted entirely to the observance of the Lord's table. So bear with me as I remind you of where we are in our series, and then we'll look at the outline that was inserted in your program. We spent a number of months looking at the first three of the six chapters of the book of Ephesians. Those first three chapters lay the foundation, the groundwork for the final three chapters. In those first three chapters, we are told who it is that we are in Christ, what our identity is as a result of being brought into God's family because of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the last three chapters, beginning with chapter 4, tell us that we are to live lives that are consistent. Verse 1 says, I urge you then, as a prisoner for the Lord, to live a life worthy of of the calling that you've received. And I pointed out that that word worthy doesn't mean that I somehow measure up in myself, but rather I'm to live a life that's consistent now with this identity that I have in Jesus Christ. And so chapter 4 begins to tell us what a life that's consistent with this high and privileged calling looks like. And in verses 1 through 24, we're told that a of chapter 4, consistent life displays unity and holiness. Verses 1 through 16 of chapter 4 is all about the necessity of unity in the lives of those who have been changed by Jesus. Now, why is that unity required? We saw it's because He, Jesus Christ, is unified with the Father and with the Spirit. They have perfect unity among themselves. And so if I'm going to be like Jesus, it means I need to be unified with those that he has called me into relationship with. And then beginning in verse 17 of chapter 4, it's about the necessity of holiness in the lives of those changed by Jesus. Why do we need to be holy? Because he is holy. And so verses 22 and 24 of chapter 4 tell us, put off the old self and put on the new self. Verse 24 says this new you, this new me, is, as we've seen, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And so specifically then, what does this new you look like? Several weeks ago we saw that if I'm going to be successful in my pursuit of Christ-likeness, 
It'll mean that I dress accordingly. I put on the right stuff. That's a metaphor for the kinds of traits, the character qualities, the virtues that will be representative of my life if I'm becoming more like Jesus. I called it at that time dressing for success. And if you'll take a look at your outline, you see that there. Dress for success. And dressing for success means from chapter 4 and verse 17 all the way to chapter 5 and verse 4 that there are six things that we are to put on, that we are to wear, as it were, if we're going to be like Jesus. Verse 25, we saw that the new you, the new us, wears truth. In verses 26 and 27, the new you wears peace in our relationships. In verse 28, the new you wears generosity towards others. A few weeks ago, in verses 29 and 30, the new you wears and I'm calling it grace. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, I called it an artfully constructive speech. But I decided to give it one word, grace. And the reason is in verse 29. If you look in verse 29, it says, Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. But only the last part of verse 29 says, Only speak that which will benefit those who hear. And that word that's translated benefit means literally that it will give grace to the hearers. And so we talk in a way that ministers, that serves to give grace to those who hear us. The new you wears grace in the way we talk. And now today, from chapter 4, verse 31, and the first two verses of chapter 5, the new you wears love. Next week we'll see the final of these six character qualities. The new you wears, and you'll see what it is when you come next week. The new you wears love. Chapter 4, verse 31. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, verse 2 of chapter 5 tells us that we are to live a life of love. So that's the reason that I say the new you now wears in addition to the other things that we've seen over the last few weeks, the new you wears, wears love. But it's not only that verse 2 simply says live a life of love, but elsewhere in Scripture we are told that the things we're to do, and we're going to see in verse 32 of chapter 4, be kind to one another, be compassionate to one another, forgive one another, all of those things actually flow and summarize what it looks like to love other people. So we're told directly in chapter 5 and verse 2, live a life of love. And in the list of things that we're told to do, at the end of chapter 4 and verse 32, the scriptures tell us elsewhere that this actually is the way love is expressed. Now where does it say that? I'll show you in just a moment on the screen. Colossians chapter 3. But before I do, I just want you to to remind you that the book of Colossians and the book of Ephesians are parallel letters. 
And I said this a few weeks ago, but you may not remember, you may not have been here. But if you were to put those two letters side by side, you would find Paul, who wrote them both, addressing the same subject matter in each of them. You'll find some of the same wording. But Colossians says it in a more condensed way. It's four chapters instead of, instead of six. It covers the same subject matter. And so in the portion of the book of Colossians that's addressing this very portion of Ephesians 4 and 5, here's what, here's what it says. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, that's in chapter 4 and verse 32, and with kindness also, he adds, but humility and gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. So you see the parallel here, right? This is who you are. You're dearly loved children. And because you are dearly loved children, here's how you should behave and manifest that relationship that you have with God in humility and patience, in kindness, compassion, forgiving one another. But then the next verse in Colossians says this. And over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So the reason I say the new you wears love is because it is because of love that we do these other things, that we're compassionate and humble and patient and forgiving with one another. The Bible tells us very directly, God is love. And whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in him. It means, friends, if I'm not doing those things in my relationships, forgiving, being compassionate, being kind, if I'm not doing those things, I don't love those who I'm in relationship with. And if I don't love, I'm not reflecting the God who is love. If we're going to live lives that are consistent with the high calling that we have, it means that we are going to wear love. Now, in your outline, I say it this way. We love by imitation. We love by imitation. Chapter 5 and verse 1, be imitators of God. Now, why is it that I start with the last two of the four verses that we're going to look at today rather than starting with chapter 4 and verse 31? The two verses that begin chapter 5 are connected to the end of chapter 4. Now, remember this. When your Bible was originally written, there were no chapters and verses. And sometimes you'll have a break where there shouldn't be a break, and this is one of them. They're connected by their structure. What we're looking at today, the new you wears love, is, as you see at the top of your outline, the fifth of these six things that we are to, to put on. It's the fifth of six commands, and each of those commands contain what we should do, what we should avoid, and a reason for doing it. And verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 are the reason that we should in the words of verse 31 of chapter 4, get rid of all of this other stuff. And in the words of verse 32, that we should be kind and forgiving and compassionate. 
So they're connected by the structure. They're also connected by the grammar. Chapter 5 and verse 1 starts with be imitators of God. And chapter 4 and verse 32 starts with be kind and compassionate to one another. And so what verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 are doing is telling us why we should avoid the stuff in verse 31 of chapter 4 and why we should do the things in verse 32 of chapter 4. And the reason I'm starting with the purpose, the cause, the reason, the basis for these actions and these things that we're to avoid is because I do not want to give the impression that you and I simply decide to change. See, change in Scripture, friends, is not just you and I turning over a new leaf and saying, I'm going to try harder. When it says get rid of all of these things in chapter 4 and verse 31, that can be understood to say just stop doing what you've been doing. But chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, tell us why we should stop those things and further why we can stop those things. And so I start with the last two verses and then we'll go and look at verses 31 and 32 of chapter 4. Chapter 5 and verse 1, be imitators of God. And that word that's translated imitators is a Greek word from which we get our word mimic. Mimic God. Now, we sometimes punish our kids if they mockingly mimic us. But we know what mimicking is. You do it, I do it. I watch very closely what you are like and how you react and how you behave in certain instances. And I copy that. I mimic that. And God is saying now, copy me. Copy my character. Mimic my character. Now, why do we do that? It's because, I say in your outline, we will copy his love and all that flows from it. From it we will love because of this. God is our Father. Be imitators of God, therefore, as what? Dearly loved children. Children who are blessed with parents who live with them often want to be like them. That great theologian Harry Chapin was right when he said in The Cats in the Cradle and The Silver Spoon, Little Boy Blue and The Man on the Moon, and it has that refrain in the mouth of a son who says, you know I'm going to be like him. One day I'm going to be like him. Years ago, Annie asked me. She said, Daddy, will you find me? help me find a husband who's like you? Now, I think she since rethought that, but that was... <laughs> And if we are children of the Father, we want to be like the Father. In chapter 1 and verse 4 of this book, Ephesians, at the end of the fourth verse in that first chapter, it says this, In love, God the Father predestined us to be adopted as his sons. In chapter 2 and verse 2, we're told that we used to live like, quote, those who are disobedient. And when chapter 2 and verse 2 says we live like those who were disobedient, that phrase is literally 
that those who were the sons of disobedience. So at one time we were not in God's family. We were not sons and daughters of God. We were the sons of disobedience and lived accordingly. Chapter 2 and verse 3 says that we were objects of wrath in the NIV. Literally, that is children of wrath. And so sons of disobedience and children of wrath. Clearly, we were at one time outside the family of God, and he was not our father. But chapter 2 and verse 19 says, we are part of God's household now in his family. And what is it that made the difference? What is it that has now made God my father when before, and me his dearly loved child, when before I was a son of disobedience and a child of wrath outside the family of God? I've been born into a new family. Chapter 2 and verse 5 says that when we were in that condition of being sons of disobedience and children of wrath, verse 5 in chapter 2 says, God made us alive. He gave us new life. And the Bible says He gave us new birth into a new family. John chapter 1. To all who received Him, that is Christ, to those who believed in His name, and so receiving Him means believing Him. So those who received him, that is, those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision. Hey, do you all see why I say you don't just turn over a new leaf? You see, God does a work in you. And he made a decision to do a work in you. Not of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. And as a result of this now, having been reborn, born again in biblical language, I am now in a new family, and I bear the family resemblance of a new father. So that the Bible then says this, incredibly, you participate in the divine nature. I'm in God's family. And I'm to bear his resemblance by displaying his nature, his character. And his nature and his character, at its core, is that God is love. And it's expressed in the ways that we're going to see. And so now, what was quite unnatural for us, becomes natural. It should be natural for Christians now to love. And do the things that love expresses. The Bible says, we love because he first loved us. So we love by imitation. And we're able to imitate because we are children of the Father. God is our Father. But secondly, I have in your outline. We love because Christ is our brother. Verse 2 of Ephesians 5 says, Live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Christ is our brother. 
You say, man, are you just trying to make your outline fit? Is it really true that God is our Father and Christ is our brother? Consider what the writer of Hebrews says. The one who makes men holy, and that is in context Christ, and those who are made holy, that would be us, are of the same family. So that Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. So why is it that we love? It's because we imitate. And who is it we imitate? We imitate the nature of the Father. Jesus shares in that nature. God the Son shares in that nature. And now we've been adopted into God's family, having been born anew by the Spirit into His family. We now are children of God and brothers with the preeminent Son, the unique one, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to see if you stick around for the next hour as we begin our series on prayer that the reason that we pray in Jesus' name is because everything that the Father does for we children is because of what He does for His special child. And we pray in Jesus' name, connecting ourselves to all that He is and all that the Father does for Him and on His behalf. We love because God's our Father and because Christ is our brother. And how did Christ love? Verse 2 tells us. He gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. When it says He gave Himself up, back in chapter 4 and verse 19, chapter 4 and verse 19 speaks of those who are still the sons of disobedience, those who are still the children of wrath, those who are still outside the family of God. And it says in verse 19 of chapter 4, having, do you see it there? Having given themselves up. Having given up all, it says, sensitivity. They gave themselves over to sensuality. It's the same word here. Just as the disobedient give themselves up, throw themselves into sensuality, the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself up, all of himself, on our behalf. If love is the essence of God's nature, and it is, then it's the essential of Christian character. And this passage in verse 2 of chapter 5 uses two technical terms that Jewish folks would use when they would talk about sacrifice. The first one is offering. He's a, a fragrant offering, and the next one is he's a sacrifice. And this word offering is derived from a verb in Hebrew that means to, to bring. And it was in bringing a meal or a, a cereal offering. And the Bible teaches that on the cross, Christ presented himself. And the passage says it was for a fragrant offering to God. That it was an offering, a sacrifice that was fragrant to God because it was acceptable and pleasing to God. 
The Bible uses this phrase of other sacrifices that are offered to God and please Him. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 18, Philippians 4.18, there's there's spoken of a, a gift, a monetary gift, that's brought to Paul by the hand of one named Epaphroditus. And Paul describes that gift as a fragrant offering to God. And so Christ's sacrifice of himself is this acceptable, pleasing offering to God. And it is also a sacrifice. And it indicates that the victim was slain. And it was similar to the peace offering in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. Because we identify with Christ in his death. Now hear this. The Christian's Christian's life will likewise prove to be an acceptable sacrifice to God. And so the work that you and I do in love, in our relationship with others, this passage is telling us is a pleasing sacrifice to God. Because it's identified with the one who gave the ultimate sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now. It is easy for us to say, I'll give my life for you if I don't have to. The Bible says that Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for others. Greater love has no one than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. So if we're going to love like Jesus loves, it means being willing to give all. And we can say, I'd die for you. But let me ask you. I'm not asking you to die for me. Or I'm not asking you to die for your spouse. Or for your children. Or for your boss. How about this? Will you just do this? Can you just admit that every now and then you're wrong? You see, we'll say things, lofty things, like I'd die for you. Of course, we don't have to. All right, let's back it. Let's dial it back a little bit. <laughs> Can you, in your relationships, just say, you know, every now and then I'm wrong? Because as we're going to see, love does that. Or I can't seek forgiveness. Or I can't grant forgiveness. I'd die for you. But you want me to forgive you? Or you want me to ask you to forgive me? Or I'd die for you, but I know I'm just not a really romantic type and I just don't say I love you very much. But you should know I do. I just, for some reason, can't squeeze it out of my lips to say I love you. I'd die for you, but I can't tell you that I love you. And to all of that, I say absolute nonsense. Unless you have a physical disability that keeps you from being able to communicate, then people are made by God to communicate. And he made you with that gift to communicate your love and your forgiveness and your kindness to other people. And it does us no good to say all the lofty things we would do if in the nitty-gritty of our relationships in life we can't forgive and seek forgiveness 
and tell people what they mean to us and tell people that we love them. Sometimes I encounter people who just say, you know, I'm just not good at expressing myself. And I say to them, you express that pretty well. I understood clearly what you just said. Have you ever noticed that people who say, oh, you know, he's just shy. He just doesn't like to talk much. You get that guy in the crowd he likes and watch out. Right? Or, you know, he's just not a real quick thinker when he gets around people and, and all of that. I've seen some people who are supposedly in that category who are masterminds, absolute masterminds, when it comes to conniving and manipulating to get what they want. Friends, God made us with the ability to communicate. And the very least we can do to those God has placed in our circle of relationship is to tell them that we love them and speak in a way that is kindly affectionate. The limitation is not for most of us physical and not mental. It's spiritual. Because I can't have my flaws exposed in this relationship. I love you. I'd give my life for you. But I don't want you to see that I'm imperfect. Well, we already know that. We read a book about you. Or I can't subdue my pride and admit I might be wrong. Or I can't just admit that maybe I don't know everything. We love by imitation. And we are to love by, in your outline, demonstration. Chapter 4, verses 31 and 32. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. We love by demonstration. So, is that what you want most? To be like God? To be like Christ? Friends, we would agree, would we not? That simply because we come to church, it does not necessarily mean that we do so because we want to be like Christ, right? We could come for all sorts of reasons. Come out of habit. My spouse drags me out. I think my kids need it. I like the people. I like the bagels. If I say I want to be like Christ, but I'm not actively engaged in comparing my character to His and seeking to change in the many, many areas that I fall short, if I'm not doing that, then I don't mean it when I say I want to be like Christ. And you see, friends, the assumption of our passage today is that we want this. Paul, who wrote this, assumes he's writing to people who want this, who have been changed in the ways that chapters 1, 2, and 3 talk about and have been adopted into God's family and bear the family resemblance and mimic the Father and mimic their brother Christ. It assumes the deepest desire of our hearts has been changed so that our highest aspiration now is to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Well, if that's going to happen, if that is our desire, then it'll be demonstrated in verses 31 and 32. In verse 32, this way, I have in your outline. 
will reflect all that is loving. And did your outside lines say all this is loving? Or all that is loving? Well, it should say all that is loving. We will reflect all that is loving. Verse 32, be kind and compassionate, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So what it all is loving? It's stuff like being kind and being compassionate. This word that's translated kind is Christos. And the title for Jesus is Christos. And because of the similarity between those two words, early Christians used this word for kindness as a chief characteristic of those who belong to Christ. This word for kindness means to show a sweet and generous disposition. Does that characterize you in your relationships? A sweet and generous disposition. Or, verse 32 says, to be compassionate. The Greeks located the seat of the emotions in internal organs in the body. Things like kidney and liver. I'm not making that up. And this is the word for that. And so they might say things like, you know, I love you with all my kidney. But for us here, it simply means that we give with our whole heart and give of ourselves with our whole heart. We are tender-hearted toward those that we're in relationship with. Does that describe you? A sweet and generous disposition, kindness. Tender-heartedness, that's compassion. And then forgiveness. Does that characterize us? Here's what the Bible says. If you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. I wonder how many marriages that claim to be Christian and come to church for whatever reasons are characterized by unforgiveness. And God says, you're not manifesting that you're part of my family if you're unwilling to forgive. And so the reason I won't forgive is because you're not in my family. That's a sobering thought, is it not? We reflect all that is loving. And then in verse 31, we reject all that is unloving. And as I said earlier, it's not just we stop doing the things in verse 31, which are get rid of bitterness and rage, anger, brawling, slander. In every form of mouth. And not just we stop doing that, but that we want to stop doing it. And we can stop doing it because we're new people in a new family. And so the command to get rid of, to put away, is to prod us to do what it's assumed we want to do and that we ought to do. And I want you to note a little word in verse 31. Get rid of how much bitterness and how much rage 
So anybody here still have a ways to go? Count me in that category. Get rid of all. And I want to bounce through these words as quickly as I can. I've got six words here. The last one sums up the other five. The first one is bitterness. Bitterness harbors resentment. It keeps a record of wrongs. And if it keeps a record of wrongs, then here's what it's not. It's not love. Why? Because the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 5 says, love keeps no record of wrongs. How many relationships purporting to be Christian have one or both parties harboring wrongs against one another that develops into bitterness? It builds up over time. It's like, to use a dental metaphor, it's like plaque on the teeth. It builds up and it hardens over time. Bitterness, rage. And the next one is anger. In fact, in the NIV, they're coupled together, rage and anger. Rage is outbursts. Anger is the slow burn. Hear this. There's never an outburst unless there's first a slow burn. We say things like, I just flew off the handle. No. You've trained your mind to want certain things and to like certain things and to react in rage if those things are not accommodated. And so there's always premeditation of some sort to the outbursts that we engage in. Rage, anger. And then he says, put away all, and the NIV uses the word brawling. It's literally shouting. It doesn't mean you physically grab the person or get into a wrestling match. But you're shouting, perhaps screaming. Or slander. The word that's translated slander there is the word from which we get blaspheme. It's to abuse someone with your words. And the source of all of this is the old self that we continue to wear and it's summed up at the end of verse 31 with a term called malice. In our judicial system, we have a concept called the absence of malice. Or with malice, someone committed a crime with malice of forethought. And what I'm telling you is this. Whenever we sin in these ways, there is always some measure of malicious forethought. Don't excuse ourselves. Get rid of all forms of it. Now, how do I do that? And we'll be done. Let me recommend to you that you first of all remember who it is you claim to be in Jesus Christ. All of this is based on the first three chapters. All of this is based on the assumption that I want to be like God. I want to be like Christ because I'm a child of God. And ask yourself, friend, am I a child of God? The fact that I come to church does not mean I belong to God's family. Am I a child of God? Do I desire, do I want to be like Jesus? Yes, I struggle. I struggle. We all struggle. Yes, I struggle, but I want to be like Jesus. If it's not the desire of our hearts, it's because God is not our Father and Christ is not our brother. That can be remedied before we leave today. Ask yourself, first of all, am I God's child? And then, if you are, 
identify how it is you manifest these things in verse 31 in your relationships. Most of us have characteristic sins. If you're an introvert, you're probably not the shouter, although you may come out of your shell sometimes. You may have particular ways of showing your anger and displeasure, but identify the particular ways you do this. And identify in what circumstances you do this. And to whom you do this. Identify how you do it. In what circumstances and to whom. And once you do that, you'll begin to narrow in on what the Bible refers to as the idols in your heart that result in you sinning in your relationships. Identify how you do it, in what circumstances, and to whom. And then lastly, call it what it is. Label it biblically. No weasel words. I am sinning when I speak to you in these unkind ways. And because I want to be like Jesus, I'm going and I'm swallowing my pride and I'm asking for your forgiveness. We're going to stop. But friends, there is much at stake here, is there not? One is, it's an identifier of whether or not we truly belong to the Father. So there's much at stake with regard to our position within the family of God. But also, as children who want to mimic the Father, those of you who have children will mimic you. Make no mistake. They're seeing what you're doing. They're seeing what's going on in your home. There are a few things that grieve me more as a pastor than to see people who know better and profess better who do not live it in their homes Monday through Saturday. And your children see that. And there will be lifelong consequences for them, perhaps, friends, eternal consequences for them. It's that serious. Do you want to be like Jesus? Are you willing to swallow your pride because you want to be like Jesus? Are you willing to seek and grant forgiveness because you want to be like Jesus? If you say you love those children, then you're willing to give up your pride and give up your position for the sake of Christ and for the sake of those He's called you to love. And if you don't desire that, it's because you need to be in God's family. How do I gain entrance into God's family? 